Hello, everyone. I'm Joan Kerr, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. Tonight's topic is Iowa and Invisible Man. Get ready for an incredible evening. Before we begin our conversation, I'd like to mention that we're coming to you from the beautiful Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum. Our production partners are UITV, the University of Iowa Pentecrest Museums, KRUI-FM, and Information Technology Services. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI-FM. It will also be available, along with all programs in the series, as a free podcast on iTunes. Now, let me begin by introducing the three people here on stage with me who will help us get our bearings by explaining how Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison became the centerpiece of a multidisciplinary collaboration here at the University of Iowa. The guests uh, with me are just to my left, Lena Hill, Professor of English and African American Studies at the University of Iowa. Welcome, Lena. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, Jean Florman uh, is at the far end, and she's the director of the University of Iowa Center for Teaching. Thanks, Jean. Thank you, Joan. Mm -hmm. And Chuck Swanson is the director of Hancher Auditorium sitting there in the center. So please give our Thanks, guests Joan. a warm welcome. <laughs> Well, so I'll start with all three of you. Whoever wants to start can jump in. But as I understand it, both uh, Chuck and, and Jean had something to do with uh, the origination of this project, and it all started with the Creative Campus Institute. Uh, Chuck, do you want to get us started? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Hancher's always done work within the DEC academic area of the university, and a couple things happened that really um, made us think a lot more about this work. First of all, we all know we were affected by that flood in 2008, left us without a building. And secondly, in 2007, we were awarded a grant from the Doris Duke Foundation. And this grant was under their program called the Creative Campus Program. And this program really wanted to see presenters on university campuses take a more academic role. And so with the fact that we didn't have a facility and we got a grant in 2007, we were one of eight presenters in the country we started to think about how we could do more of this work within the university campus. And with the project that we did in 2007, it was actually a project where we partnered with the Center for Macular Degeneration over at University Hospitals, the theater department, and the Creative Campus Writing Program over at the College of Medicine. And Doris Duke loved the project. They were just so pleased with what we did with this project that they said, we want you to do more of this work on campus. And so they came back with an opportunity to apply for a sustaining grant. And so Jacob Yarrow, our programming director, Aaron Donahue, our education programming director, and myself said, we need to talk to our friend Gene Foreman, who is always connecting us with faculty across campus. So we had a meeting with Gene, and what did we come up with, Gene? We came up with a Creative Campus Faculty Institute. Uh, actually, we had many meetings, Chuck. I'm sure you remember that. <laughs> Um, this was a, a, the format that we used is actually something that the Center for Teaching has done a number of times, where we bring together faculty members, usually about a dozen, sometimes we've had as many as 22, around a particular way of teaching. It could be service learning, it could be something on assessment, and the faculty members spend a very intense, um, concentrated time together, three to five days, where they um, 
talk together about this way of teaching. We usually bring in somebody um, to do the institute, and this year we brought in Sean Lewis, who will be up here later, a local playwright, um, MFA from University of Iowa, and uh, somebody named Matt Ouellette from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, who's a faculty developer. So the two of them, with uh, some support, some help, conducted the institute, and the idea of the institute was to connect faculty members to each other, and to them, and to us, so that faculty members could start thinking about how they could bring in the performing arts into their teaching. And this was everything from dealing with um, if they were interested in, in social justice issues, immigration issues. Um, there were a lot of different things that the faculty members were teaching, but Matt um, and Sean and the rest of us really focused them on how Hancher in particular and performing artists could help them teach. Because the makeup of the faculty was all across campus. I think we had one from the theater arts, otherwise we had the College of Social Work, College of Law, Rhetoric, English, and African American Studies, epidemiology. And, epidemiology, and we were so fortunate because Lena Hill was one of the fellows <laughs> at the Institute. And so a month later, Lena gets an email from Chris McElron in New York, and the email, go ahead, Lena. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, yes, I'd had an amazing experience during the Creative Campus Institute. So when I received this email from Chris Macaron, I immediately thought about that experience. So when Chris contacted me, he said he'd come across one of my articles on Invisible Man and the uh, way that it was invested in visual culture. Um, and he said, you know, do you think there's a possibility we could create a, a residency to develop the play? And I didn't know that um, Invisible Man was being adapted for the stage, so I was very excited, but of course had no idea how to go about creating a residency. But I did know Chuck, um, <laughs> and I knew he had all kinds of ideas about how to accomplish that. So I contacted Chuck, and from that phone call, um, what we've said again and again is that a series of very fortunate, serendipitous events followed um, that really brought us to today. Yeah, it's fantastic, and, and uh, this connection, you didn't know at the time that you were in the Creative uh, Campus Institute mm -hmm. that there was an adaptation underway that this play would be opening in Chicago. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and that's what was so amazing. Um, this was really exactly the kind of seed that the Creative Campus Institute wanted to nourish, um, something that brought faculty scholarship, um, the idea of the performing arts, and a way to impact the university community, the Iowa City community, and even beyond. We've had uh, events in Cedar Rapids. We have a professor joining us from Grinnell. Um, so it's exactly what the Creative Campus Institute yeah. wanted to accomplish, um, yeah. which is one thing we're really excited about. And it was so great because everybody assumed their roles in the way that we had hoped it would happen. Lena did all the scholarly work, brought all the people together for all of the, the seminars and, and all the, the panels. And then Hancher really assumed the role as a producer. You know, we helped to raise the money, we worked on the schedule, the communication, and then all the, you know, the, the marketing materials and the, uh, the publicity. And Together, it's just ended up just being a marvelous partnership. And Gene is really the one that came up with the idea of taking Invisible Man and bringing it to the University of Iowa, the African-American experience from the 30s to the 50s. 
Well, that was mostly because I, I um, have worked as a writer in the past, and I knew that there was this amazing history of, of uh, African-American students here, probably from the 1930s through the 1960s. So, yeah, I think we all contributed. And the thing is that the, the impact on the students has been profound, I think, and will continue to be, not only in your class, but in other classes. Um, and I think, there are there students involved in the, in the reading, too? There are. Many of our theater students are participating. And I think one element we've forgotten to share is that when Chris contacted me, he immediately alerted us to the fact that Fanny Ellison was a graduate of the University of Iowa in 1936. And so that's really what made us think, wouldn't this be profound to use this opportunity as a way of reflecting on the university's complicated past when we think about race relations um, through the lens of Invisible Man, so, yeah. Well, and I know that, that something has been discovered about Fanny Ellison's experience here, and as, as is the case, as we look back in history, um, her experience was not entirely positive. As I understand it, she was not allowed to perform on stage. She was not allowed to perform on the stage. Um, Fanny Ellison uh, first attended Fisk University, and then for financial reasons, um, tra uh, transferred to the University of Iowa in 1934. Um, and was a, a theater student and wasn't allowed to perform on the stage. was very active. She saved all of her notes, her uh, notes from the registrar's office. Uh, this was it, was, it was amazing. I, after Chris uh, contacted me, I was actually on my way back to the Library of Congress, and so I had an opportunity to sort of peek at the files on Fanny Ellison and to see her notes from classes. She was very a very studious um, student, but yes, um, when she reflected back on her experiences here, she... They weren't positive reflections, um, but I shared this. Uh, by 1959, she was able to write to a friend that notwithstanding the fact that it was very difficult to be an African-American student on a, a, a campus that was not just predominantly white, but just almost all white, um, that things had changed, and she was glad to be able to mm -hmm. see that that was the case. Yeah. Do you know whether Ralph Ellison was ever on this campus? I think he was, but Fanny Ellison was very adamant that he would not be able to teach here um, or participate in the writer's workshop. He um, taught at many universities, but she said the University of Iowa would not be one of those because of her experiences here as a student. Wow. Joan, what's been great about this project, too, is the depth of the university. There's so many areas of the university involved in this, and when Lena and I would go around and talk to people from the university about being a part of this, it didn't take people long at all to decide that this is something that they wanted to jump on board. And then we always measure the success of an event is kind of the aftermath, and every event has lasted, oh, about an hour, maybe hour and a half, but it's afterwards. People stay around, and they talk, and they... They just, they just can't get enough. And I think that has really been evident that people have really enjoyed this week. Well, and when you say that, I assume that you mean not only the African-American audience members, but everybody who's come to hear the talk. Right. Everybody has something to reflect on. Yeah. And there's, also, there's also been a number of uh, school-aged children that have attended, which is wonderful, actually. Yeah. There are quite a few on that, on that Monday panel when the um, black uh, Hawkeyes came back and, and talked about their time here. So that was very nice. And to see Chris uh, work in the classroom, Lena, yeah. that was really amazing. He had the students up, you know, doing a lot of movement, you know, playing the parts and the roles, and, and then also watching some of the faculty, too. I think the faculty members were really, I mean, they really enjoyed it. Yeah. 
Well, that's terrific. Well, for those of you who are here and people who are listening to this program or watching this program, you'll be meeting the director in a little while and uh, one of the classroom teachers who, who um, had this experience with her students and uh, a number of other very, very interesting people who had participated in these panels earlier in the week. So there's a lot ahead. And before we let this little group go, Jean, I wonder if you can tell us what other projects related to uh, the Center for Teaching or the mm -hmm. Creative Campus Institute are, are sort of currently under review or underway? Well, I'll uh, say a couple of things. Um, first of all, the, the gentleman, the uh, faculty member and director of the Center for Teaching at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, who, who did conducted the, co-conducted the uh, um, institute, will be back here in April, early April, to do uh, a faculty workshop. So those of you who are faculty members out there, you're welcome to come, of course. Anybody's welcome to come. Um, but in addition, from this institute per se, there have been several faculty members who are already starting other projects. Um, they will take off in different directions, but one is going to be probably a two-year project. Uh, Lois Arthur, who's a professor in the uh, theater arts department, is planning a whole series of events um, on campus, off campus, and actually even in Mexico related to um, Carnival, and that will involve students and faculty members and many different people, and of course, Hancher in some way. Um, Chuck, who else? We've got a couple. Sean Lewis, who Sean? you mentioned will be mm -hmm. speaking tonight. Uh, Hancher has commissioned him to write a play. It's called Mayberry, and this is a play about the changing demographics in our community. And there are a lot of faculty members who have already taken advantage of Sean in a lot of different ways. Yeah. So, uh, um, and, and Sean has some very interesting things he told me just before here. Uh, interesting comments and observations when he's been working with a couple of the institute faculty members about how he has learned from them, and then he turns around and also teaches on, in uh, uh, other settings. So it's really spun off in interesting ways. And I have to just add quickly that the faculty members who attend these institutes are fabulous. They're very willing to take risks. I mean, really, did you have any idea exactly what this was about? Um, and they're willing to take risks with their teaching also, um, because when we ask them to completely upend the way they teach, even if you're a, a very talented um, veteran teacher, it's, it's somewhat of a risk, so thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, Chuck, again, before I let you go, I know that you were talking to me before the program about your hope for some sustainability for this particular project. Well, I've already talked to Lena about that, and I think she's, she's overwhelmed, but we've got <laughs> ideas. You know, we've got some things that, that we're hopefully uh, planning, at least in the next few years. One thing about it is this project came together so quickly but typically that doesn't happen. Typically, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're careful planners. Uh, but this by far was, was one of the fastest moving projects that we've ever had. I just, um, and the most fun. It's really been delightful. Yeah, yeah it's been great. Well, we are so grateful that you allowed us to, to share this experience on the World Canvas program. Many people will have a chance to see it or hear it who weren't able to attend the other events this week. So thank you for that. And we're going to go now for uh, in just a moment to a reading, a part of the staged play that will be put on in full tomorrow night uh, in Shamba Auditorium. And Lena, would you like to set this up at all, or should we just invite Greg on up to do the reading? He can come on up. I think um, he's going to share a very powerful moment from the prologue of Invisible Man. Um, and this is really a treat, a yeah. real sneak preview of what's going to be an amazing play that will open in Chicago, and you can be there on Saturday at 7 p.m. to see what we have in store. <laughs> so, hi, we're welcoming to the stage now Craig Jaffra, and you are a student in theater arts, Craig? Um, yes, oh, it's loud enough. <clears throat> 
excuse me. Um, I am a third year MFA candidate in the theater performance program here at Iowa. Terrific. Thank you for taking the time to do this tonight. We're looking forward to it. All right. <laughs> I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those that haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood ectoplasms. I'm a man of substance, of flesh and bone, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. They see only my surroundings or figments of their imagination, everything and anything but me. I'm not complaining. It is sometimes advantageous to be unseen, although rather wearing on the nerves. You often wonder whether you aren't simply a phantom in other people's minds. It's when you feel like this that you begin to bump people back. And let me confess, you feel that way most of the time. You ache with the need to convince yourself that you do exist in the real world, that you are part of all the sound and anguish, and you strike out with your fist, you curse, and you swear to make them recognize you. One night, I actually bumped into a man, and he'd called me an insulting word, insulting name. I seized his coat lapels and demanded he apologize. He was a tall, blonde man, and as my face came close to his, he looked insolently out of his blue eyes and cursed me. And butting him, I felt his flesh tear and blood gush out. Apologize! Apologize! And I got out my knife and prepared to slit his throat right there in the street. When it occurred to me that the man had not seen me, actually. That he, as far as he knew, was in the midst of a walking nightmare. He lay there moaning on the asphalt, a man almost killed by a phantom. <laughs> Something in, his in this man's head had sprung out and beaten him within an inch of his life. Most of the time, I'm not so overtly violent. I remember that I'm invisible and walk softly so as not to awaken the sleeping ones. Sometimes it's best not to awaken them. There are few things in the world as dangerous as sleepwalkers. I learned, though, that it's possible to carry on a fight against them without their recognizing it. I've been carrying on a fight with monopolized light and power for some time now. All they know is that a hell of a lot of, a hell, a hell of, a lot of free current is disappearing somewhere into the jungles of Harlem. The joke, of course, is that I don't live in Harlem, but in a border area. Now, aware of my invisibility, I live rent-free in a building rented strictly to whites, which I discovered when I was trying to escape in the night from Rada Destroyer, but I'm getting too far ahead of the story, almost to the end. Although, the end is in the beginning and lies far ahead. Call me Jack the Bearer, for I am in a state of hibernation. My hole is warm and full of light. Yes, full of light. In the basement hole, there are exactly 1,369 lights. I've wired the entire ceiling, every inch of it, an act of sabotage. I've already begun to wire the wall. When I finish all the walls, then I'll start on the floor. I doubt if, there's a, if there is a brighter spot in all of New York than this hole of mine. And I do not exclude Broadway. I now can see the darkness of lightness. And I love light. Perhaps you think it's strange that an invisible man should need light, desire light, love 
light, but maybe it is exactly because I am invisible. I myself, after existing some 20 years, did not become alive until I discovered my invisibility. Now I have one radio phonograph. I plan to have five. When I have music, I feel, when I have music, I want to feel its vibrations, not only with my ears, but with my whole body. I like to hear five recordings of Louis Armstrong playing and singing, what did I do to be so black and blue all at the same time? See, I like Louis because he made poetry out of being invisible. Invisibility gives one a slightly different sense of time. You're never quite on the beat. You slip into the breaks and look around and wait patiently for the other voices to speak. I not only enter the music, but descend like Dante into its depths. At first, I was afraid. This familiar music demands action, the kind of which I was incapable. I believe in nothing if not action. A hibernation is, co is a covert preparation for more overt action. I can hear you say, what a horrible, irresponsible bastard. And you're right. Irresponsibility is part of my invisibility. But to whom can I be responsible and why should I be when you refuse to see me? Responsibility rests upon recognition. Take that man I almost killed. He didn't, he bumped me. He insulted me. He was lost in a dream world, but didn't he control that dream world? And didn't he rule me out of it? I was the, the, I was the irresponsible one. I should have used my knife to protect the higher interest of society. Even the invisible victim is responsible for the faith of all. But I shirked that responsibility. I was a coward. But what did I do to be so blue? <laughs> it goes a long way back. Thank you very much. That was Greg Jafra, and we'll have a chance to hear a little more of your work a little bit later on. So thank you. I would like to uh, let Chuck and Jean and Greg go for now. I'm going to keep Lena and invite our next guests up to uh, join us. We're going to talk a little bit more now about the actual novel Invisible Man and about Ralph Ellison and uh, about you know his influence on writing here in our time. So uh, Horace Porter is able to join us, I see, and we have Lena Hill and Michael Hill and Shanna Benjamin uh, all coming on up to join us. Hi. Thank you, Horace. I'm glad you could be here. And uh, Michael and Shanna are joining us as well. This is World Canvas for those of you uh, listening uh, over the radio. 
so I'll just move down the line here. Horace Porter is a professor of English and African American studies here at the university, a Wendell Miller professor, I think. And uh, he is just next to Lena. And Shanna Benjamin is a professor of English and uh, specializes in African American literature and culture at Grinnell College. Thanks for being here. And Michael Hill is a professor of English and African American studies here at the University of Iowa. So welcome to you all. Thank you for coming. So we've just heard this little snippet from the prologue. Obviously, this is an incredibly complex and really, really interesting book. And, and I think for those people who read it some time ago or have read it recently or have never had a chance to read it, we need to learn something about Ralph Ellison, who he was, uh, where this book kind of came from in his life experience, and uh, what it has meant to literature here in this country and, and anywhere else in the world. Um, I know that Horace has spent a lot of time working on Ellison uh, and Ellison's writing, so perhaps I'll turn to you first, Horace, and you can tell us something about who this man was. Uh, well, uh, first of all, uh, one of the things that he, I actually got to know him in the late 70s, and uh, one of the things that he often said was he was himself rather surprised by the uh, fact that this book kept, had a sort of life of his own, and I think that he would see this instance as one of those uh, examples. I myself had never heard anyone read it so dramatically as uh, <laughs> now, and, and, and so when I'm in the classroom trying to read the beginning of the prologue, it doesn't sound quite like that. So when you have, <laughs> when you have a real actor uh, giving words their, their real life, it makes an extraordinary difference. So I thank you for bringing that ironic voice of the narrator alive. Uh, one of the things I would say about him is that he, uh, meaning Ellison in the book, is that he, uh, as we, some of you may have heard the panel the other night, was something of a perfectionist. So he was always trying to get it just so, and hearing the words come alive in this dramatic way, uh, you can see that he had thought very carefully about not just the words on the page themselves, but the intonation, the sort of ironic pauses and so forth. Uh, so that's a, a point that he would, uh, that he certainly was uh, very much careful about. Mm -hmm. I'll stop here and uh, let others speak and come back sure. a little bit later. Okay, okay. Well, um, Michael and Shanna, let's, let's uh, hear some of your thoughts about um, who this guy is who wrote this book. You know, wh how much of his life is written into this book, do you think? Michael. Sure. Um, one of the things that's very interesting about Ellison is his insistence upon his Midwestern or frontier identity. The fact that he's an Oklahoman uh, and that in many ways this informed his identity and his conception of himself as a Renaissance man that he sees himself as somehow interconnected with a variety of traditions and that he has a polyvalent notion of the selfhood that he brings to this project. What's intriguing about that is that Ellison, coming from that background of being a Midwesterner, is then propelled for the first time in a sustained way into a Southern environment when he goes to Tuskegee University. So he's out on the frontier in the Midwest and he receives his education up to high school in the Midwest and then he transfers over to the South in Tuskegee and from there he's really propelled into the signature dynamics of modern African-American existence, meaning he lives in the segregated South, then, like many who participated in the Great Migration, he leaves the South to go to the North, particularly to New York. So 
on one level, Ellison's conception of himself as a Renaissance man has its grounding in his, in his Midwestern background, but there's also a sense in which Ellison's life uh, follows a path that makes him somewhat representative, certainly, of the life of many African Americans in the early part of the 20th century. So I think that that notion of symbolism and the powerful ideas of a kind of a symbolism of representative experiences is to be found within the plot of Invisible Man. So I don't know to what extent, and Ellison was often fairly coy with regard to statements about the autobiographical content of Invisible Man, but there's certainly a way in which the broad parameters of the book seem to map to aspects of his life that are speaking to or in conversation with broader notions of African-American existence in the early part of the 20th century. Yeah, uh, Shana, what are your thoughts? Well, just in listening particularly to Michael's comments about this idea of movement, the notion of African Americans moving from one place to the next and having both physical and psychological changes being associated with that makes me think so much about Robert Steptoe uh, and From Behind the Veil and these narratives of ascent and immersion and how the movement also is accompanied by a shift in focus that can widen, it can narrow, and I think it also is a way for African Americans to reconceptualize the way that they envision the past. For example, in narratives of ascent, um, and this is not just a physical movement north, but it's also a psychological movement, where one uh, begins to view the north as a land of milk and honey, as a land of opportunity. But then once that arrival takes place, there's a realization that perhaps, in fact, the north is not all that it's cracked up to be. And so the sense of the south, the oppression that's represented by those narratives of the symbolic south are seen through new eyes where you're able to view your home as a place of possibility and not just of oppression. You begin to appreciate the folk root the folk roots that are there. And I think that in Invisible Man, the fact that it's there's so much with movement and physical movement and the shifts in perspective that there's definitely a way to map the text onto major currents within African-American literary theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lena. I see you as you sort of nodding in agreement here. Um, for those who don't sort of know the way this story progresses, maybe we could mention that there are sort of major episodes that happen sequentially in this novel and shock, shocking things in the, in the uh, eyes of this young man. And he finds himself going one direction, then another direction. And, and social movements that we're all familiar with here from the 20th century are kind of happening around him. And, and he, and he and he faces this in, in many different ways. And then as we see in the prologue, you know, he says, oh, it started a long way back. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very complicated, but very, uh, you know, sort of compelling story. Can, can you uh, tell people who haven't read this book a little bit about what goes on? 
Okay. Um, yes, it's, it's somewhat picaresque in form, so that even as it's a frame narrative, mean, meaning that the, the protagonist tells it um, as a reflection back on things that have happened before, so from the position of his basement. And I think that uh, my colleagues here have set that up beautifully, that uh, he tells it from this underground hole. Um, so what has happened? He has, we, we, we meet him in the narrative proper at a southern school that is very much reminiscent of Tuskegee. Um, and there, he's very naive uh, as he interacts with different power constructs, and he has a, a very simplistic notion of what American success means. And he's pursuing it blindly, and blindly is key here. Um, and as he pursues it, he meets with some difficult realities um, and is expelled uh, unceremoniously from this southern um, school that represents a kind of Edenic space for him and goes to New York. And in New York is, is, is still striving to find uh, that success story that he's read about and heard about and seems um, just ever on the horizon. There, as he tries to connect with powerful people on Wall Street, finds a job in a paint factory, a, a series of events um, take place that in some ways awaken him, but not fully uh, to the sense of his own naivete. Um, and even as he's awakened, he's thrust into the Harlem community and begins to connect with folk characters like Mary Rambo and others. Um, and, and is on the precipice in some ways of reconnecting uh, with his identity, with a sort of African-American cultural identity. Um, but before that can happen, uh, he gives a speech at an eviction and that leads him to connect with an, uh, 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 the Brotherhood, uh, which is a political organization. And then he gets wrapped up uh, in the Brotherhood politics and again, fails to think for himself fails to connect in a real way to his own sense of self. Um, and because of that, he is manipulated and exploited and ends up causing harm to a community that he, he does truly want to help. Um, and you, you feel, Ellison, saying you have to know yourself before you can act in any kind of, of really effective way. Um, so as the narrative progresses and he has relationships or almost uh, romantic relationships and, and all kinds of experiences, um, we end with him finally discovering that he's missed so much and uh, about what it is to be American, what it is to be a young black man in this society, um, and he's reflecting. And so in those frame portions in the prologue and the epilogue, those are really the spaces where he speaks from a position of maturity and insight that we don't see within the narrative proper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Well, one of the things that I think a, a reader um, discovers fairly early on is the presence of jazz in his life and is in, ex in his experience. And I wonder, Horace, if you could tell us a little bit about this connection to jazz. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, taking up on a point that uh, Michael Hill made, uh, Ellison uh, grew up in Oklahoma City, and one of the things that he talks about in his essays, uh, particularly an essay called Hidden Name and Complex Fate, is the... Uh, complex cultural legacy of Oklahoma. Uh, he points out uh, in this essay and other essays too that the perception of Oklahoma City as this space where there was nothing really there except the frontier is grossly uh, incorrect because there were jazz musicians there. First of all, uh, the jazz guitarist Charlie Christian, uh, the uh, jazz singer, blues jazz singer Jimmy Rushing, 
and he talked about the fact that there were always concerts with people like Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington coming through, and he said the idea that uh, his life was one of utter uh, depression, he was responding to uh, an essay by Irving Howe, was, uh, was totally incorrect because he said, if you were a young boy in Oklahoma City or anywhere for that matter, black or white, and you saw uh, Duke Ellington's glorious, glorious orchestra come to town with this New York staging and the way the musicians were so elegantly dressed and all of that, it gave you some sense of hope and inspiration. And uh, so he saw jazz and jazz musicians as something very, very important as a cultural form, the only indigenous, indigenous American cultural form. And that practitioners like Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, uh, these were powerful, major, iconic figures that had contributed so much to American culture. There's another element connected to jazz that he talks about a lot, and that is this idea of discipline, that this notion, false notion, that jazz musicians just sort of uh, picked it up and you know, sort of uh, made it jazzy and, and, and swung with it. Well, when you hear Louis Armstrong and you hear him play those high C's, those of you who are trumpet players in the audience know how difficult it is to hit that C up on the second octave. When you hear him play that, that, those high C's so effortlessly, well, he does it because he practiced those high C's over and over again so that he can hit them at will like virtually no one else. And so uh, this, this notion that, it was, that these musicians were sort of self-schooled and all that, yeah, they were self-schooled, but they, these jazz sessions, Ellison said, were like uh, seminars. They were like uh, uh, things that you would have at Juilliard where these musicians would come together and they would play and practice. And by, he saw that sort of metaphorically as an extension of one very important component of African-American life in general, the idea of discipline with a capital D, that despite the oppression and all the negative things, that part of what was one of the uh, legacies of African-American culture was the ability and the will and the courage to grow stronger at the broken places and to take the very victimization and to turn it to something positive. He said that if you were in a situation where you could be visited by arbitrary violence and by all kinds of things that you could not anticipate upon that it was incumbent upon you. In fact, you had to create your own sense of value and worth so as to make sense of your life if you were being told over and over again in a thousand different ways that you were nobody and you were nothing and uh, that you weren't really uh, worthy of being a true citizen of American life. So he connects the discipline of jazz and the discipline of African American life. You see them as coextensive. And uh, yeah, he, he believed in, uh, in jazz, and he really did love uh, Louis Armstrong. I uh, once sent him a fall, one, of, one of those small postcards of Louis Armstrong in a kind of almost minstrel position. Uh, he's holding his trumpet, and he's, his eyes are <laughs> bulging out. And the next time I visited, he had it sort of posted and frame, I thought that was I'm very proud of that. So I have now one of those same ones <laughs> posted. <laughs> I didn't like the photograph. I just thought I would, send, I would send it to him as a kind of, you know, look at this. 
but now I have it. It's a, it has a place of honor in my own study. <laughs> right, right. Now, there's an interesting thing that comes up repeatedly in the novel, and it's reflection back to his grandfather and what his grandfather said. Just say, yes, sir, and just, and just um, sort of uh, confound the culture that is trying to control you by being compliant in a way, mm -hmm. was the way I read it. Can, can you talk a little bit about this in the novel? A any of you who has Michael? Michael? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's an interesting dynamic. I mean, this notion of uh, transgenerational conflict or transgenerational tension is a very powerful theme within the novel. And it's interesting because his grandfather emerges almost uh, exclusively either through the subconscious, through dreams, or else uh, on the deathbed moment, you know, like at these yeah. liminal spaces, these in-between spaces as far as the protagonist is concerned. So in many ways, coming back to a point that I made earlier, the protagonist comes to stand not only for the search for an individual identity, but also in many ways for uh, a culture that's in transition. In 52, when the novel comes out, but even as early as 40, uh, there are powerful instances of segregation being challenged in a formal way. So the grandfather's admonitions seem to belong to a moment where coping with or surviving or uh, healing the broken places requires a particular strategy. And so for the protagonist, the grandfather's admonition seems like an outmoded prescription. He seems to be telling them things that don't make sense and everyone's actually confounded by him. The parents are looking and they're like, I don't understand what this is. And he emerges as a person that for them is almost um, that phantom that Greg was reading about earlier. Mm -hmm. Equally as much as um, the white culture can be confronted and somehow deal with uh, the phantasmic elements within African-American culture, there is a sense in which our ancestors emerge at moment as uh, ghosts that are haunting us and we're inconclusive about what they might mean. Mm -hmm. So I think that the grandfather is a powerful suggestion, and this is something that Professor Benjamin was talking about earlier, is this notion that the Southern folk have codes that they have mastered and that they often are suggesting live beyond the particular situation in which they were born. Mm -hmm. And this comes to that notion of discipline. And it's something that you know later writers uh, take up and are trying to deal with as far as Ellison is concerned. He becomes the grandfather who seems to be sending a cryptic message, as it were, to the African-American literary tradition. And many people are like, I don't quite understand exactly what this is about. I don't, I don't know what you're trying to tell me to do. So I think that in many ways, Ellison sees himself not just as dealing with a kinship relationship as far as a grandfather and a grandson, but this is a relationship that is allegorically freighted with everything from how do you live as a citizen of the United States to how do you write as an African-American attempting mm -hmm. to capture the richness of this experience. Yeah, well that actually leads me into the question I wanted to get to next, which was how did other African-American writers of his time and later African-American writers um, think about Ellison and his points of view as expressed in this novel? Well, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Ellison is that, uh, as my buddy Larry Jackson, who's written the first biography of Ralph Ellison, as he suggests, in both anecdotally but also in his uh, published writings, Ellison 
is a, a polarizing figure, right? Like he's pugilistically inclined at certain moments within his life. There's a prickliness that surrounds him. And I think that from the earliest moments, this began to manifest itself. When Invisible Man shows up, a lot of people who felt like they uh, were owed something by Ellison came through uh, to collect. And in many instances, they found themselves with their hands extended and not being paid. <laughs> so the object lesson in this regard is someone like Jay Saunders Redding, who felt as a dean of African-American letters, I mean, he felt like uh, you need to pay due deference to me. Jay Saunders Redding is a man who taught at uh, Hampton University for large portions of his life. Uh, Redding, by the time that Ellison comes along, is a well-established writer. He's published novels. He's published critical studies. He sees himself as a dean of African-American letters, and he has prominent access to liberal outlets of the day. When Ellison comes along and pretty much steals all the thunder, Redding's like, you know, at least you should say that, you know, there were others who came before. And in many people's minds, Ellison, in making statements about uh, especially his black literary predecessors, often deem, he, they, they deem that he, he paid too little attention to the way that the tradition had unfolded in an aggressive way before him. Paid a lot of attention to culture, paid a lot of attention to Jimmy Rushing, paid a lot of attention to the Louis Armstrongs, but in terms of a deep investment in figures like Langston mm -hmm. Hughes or figures like Richard Wright, who they thought may have played a more prominent role in bringing him to the fore, they felt like he may have ignored them. So I felt that at moments, African-American writers produced a highly ambivalent perception of Ellison. Some reviewers were very high on him. Elaine Locke was one who spoke highly of him. There were other reviewers, uh, such as an anonymous reviewer in the uh, Amsterdam News who viewed Invisible Man as the worst thing to happen to the African-American since slavery. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, and I think one, one way to understand this from Ellison's point of view, because he wrote about this in many of his essays, um, and I think Professor Porter touched upon this in his discussion of, of Ellison's, um, of the way that jazz was very important. One thing Ellison um, guarded very seriously was the idea that he was just one more African-American writer who wasn't special and, and, and somehow um, hadn't imbibed anything from the larger literary legacy, the larger literary American legacy and world legacy. Um, so that in an essay um, like The World in the Jug, where he was responding to a writer, Irving Howe, who came down very hard on Ellison um, and said that he wasn't as legitimate as someone like Richard Wright in talking about the African-American experience from a more polemical standpoint. Um, Ellison said, must my blackness blind me to all other values? And, and he went on to say, um, yes, Wright was very important. He was a literary relative. Yes, Langston Hughes was very important. He was a literary relative. But some of my ancestors that were just as important were T.S. Eliot, who he discovered at Tuskegee and changed his world when he read The Wasteland, Dostoevsky, Hemingway, Melville. And this was problematic for many African-American writers. But for Ellison, he felt that no one should try to write his own literary history for him. He guarded that right as a writer and as an artist. And mm -hmm. I think for him, that was very important. Mm -hmm. I would just add that uh, excellent point that Professor Lena Hill just made that that one of the things that Ellison uh, did, and sort of in terms of his aesthetic perspective, was that it was similar to that of a jazz musician or any very powerful artist, 
That is, they are, by their inherent nature, sort of aesthetic thieves. So if something works for what he's trying to achieve, whether it comes from Dostoevsky or Wright or Langston Hughes or a folk preacher that he's heard, he's going to use it and make, make use of it. So uh, when the proponents of the black aesthetics uh, came along and, and had a point of view on Ellison as some sort of old fogey who was only thinking about the great European masters, he thought that was uh, very, very shallow, that there are all these great books uh, from the past, certainly from the 19th century Russians, who knew something about the novel, Henry James and others, that he, as a practitioner, would make use of. Uh, in other words, a jazz musician was not simply going to look at other, other uh, people who, from their state or, or race or whatever. They're going to use whatever. And another appropriate analogy that he often referred to was that of athletics, is that people look at athletes and there's a certain sort of, sort of techniques that, that's developed or a certain kind of way of doing things. And uh, you take from whatever you see there in the culture from other artists to make use of. And the other thing I know that Professor Lena Hill has a lot to say about this, Ellison was very much interested in art and artists, visual artists. One of his closest friends was the artist Romary Bearden. He was always thinking about art, and in his apartment he had some very, very beautiful pieces of art from Bearden and others. So he had a visual sense of things as well, so he was always attuned to what visual artists were doing and trying to find some sort of transmutation of what visual artists did for his own literary craft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. And Shana? Yeah, and just in listening to the conversations, not just about this idea of generations within the text, but also outside of them, I think that um, this idea of an, in, an individual's um, assertion against the group or this notion of being a link in the chain of tradition, um, being a member of a collectivity, but at the same time being an individual, is a way of thinking about um, jazz music, of course, because it is ultimately democratic. Um, you have solos for everyone. Everyone has an opportunity to take center stage, but at the same time, there's a way that they work together as a group. And so in thinking about um, the relationship of, for example, as, as uh, Michael mentioned earlier, the protagonist and his grandfather, um, in addition to thinking about the way uh, jazz musicians conceptualize the past, conceptualized lines um, and very small elements that they may amplify, they may change, they may alter in some way, but there's always that trace. There's always that piece of the history, that piece of the line, that piece of all of um, the literary elements. And it seems very appropriate that for someone um, who's known for his work in montage, um, that you have Bearden, sort of, um, the two of them being friends, the fact that you take these snippets and you bring them together to create a new whole, I think is a very important way of thinking about um, Ellison's relationship to his literary ancestors. Mm -hmm. uh, and just one last question in this segment. Um, does an African-American woman read this novel differently than an African-American man might? Um, wow. 
Um, <laughs> well, I think that certainly gender and the implications of being a black woman and seeing yourself in a text where you have um, a man going on his journey is, you know, the relationship between black men and black women and the building of black communities is one that I think is complicated. And I don't see myself asserting my perspectives necessarily on uh, black feminist thought, on the journey of the protagonist. His journey is his own. Um, but one of the things that I've been interested in, um, I did my graduate work at UW-Madison and Herbert Hill, who published Soon One Morning, included uh, a, an expert, um, a chapter that was taken out of, uh, of Invisible Man. And um, of course, now that uh, scholars like the Hills have access to the, um, to the archival information that gives us more information about the drafts, um, this was one example of um, Ellison sort of dealing with black women. And one of the things that he says uh, in a note to this, uh, what's essentially a short story, is that um, what would the, and I'm paraphrasing, what would the American Negro be without the Marys of our ever-expanding Harlems? So as I think about the ways in which African Americans are moving, not just to um, sort of these major metropolitan areas in the north or down south, but also in the Midwest in places like Iowa, um, it's important to consider the ways in which um, black women and black men are working together. And in that, story, that, and, and in that short story in particular, I think that you're able to see um, Ellison also working through black women as cultural midwives, um, working in concert with black men. So I think that there are important ways to think about the relationship that's not necessarily antagonistic. Mm -hmm. Anyone else have a comment on that question? I mean, the interesting thing with regard to that dynamic is um, how someone like Toni Morrison would perceive of Ralph Ellison and specifically the way that she's talked about her relationship with the Invisible Man. Because I think the point that Professor Benjamin made is an important one, yet at the same moment, Morrison has suggested that her career is founded upon the absence of a black female voice as far as Invisible Man is concerned. Like that there is a way in which she feels that she was impelled to write as a black woman in the 1950s by the fact that Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison seemed to be speaking elsewhere as far as she was concerned. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Wow, what an interesting segment. Thank you so much. Lena Hill, I think, is gonna stay with us for this next segment. Horace Porter, thank you so much. Shanna Benjamin, thank you. Michael Hill, thanks so much. <laughs> And as our next uh, guests come up to join us, I'll just remind you that this is World Canvas, a production of international programs at the University of Iowa, and we invite you to watch the rebroadcast of this program on UITV or listen on Iowa Public Radio or KRUI-FM. Links to the broadcast can be found at International Program's website, international.uiowa.edu.
The full World Canvas series can be seen on UITV and is available as a downloadable podcast on iTunes. I'd like to invite you to the next program in this series, which will be held here in the Senate Chamber on January 27th, and the topic is Women, Hysteria, and Medicine, and that's at 5 o'clock on Friday, January 27th, so please do join us for that. Well, now I think we're just about set with uh, our next segment, and I'd like to introduce next to Lena, Christopher Macaron, director and producer of uh, the stage adaptation of Invisible Man. Thank you, Chris, for being here. And Julia Watt is a movement expert and uh, actress who's been working with Chris this week on uh, this uh, staging of Invisible Man. So thank you so much for taking time out of what is certainly a busy residency to be here with us. I appreciate it so much. And. Um, Chris, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your, uh, your past, the other work you've been involved in before you sort of hit upon this Invisible Man project. Uh, sure. Um, I was the uh, co-founder of the Classical Theatre of Harlem, uh, which is a professional theatre company uh, based in uh, Harlem. It was founded in residence at the Harlem School of the Arts. Uh, I founded that company in 1999 and was... Uh, the producing executive director there for 11 seasons. Uh, and in that time, we produced uh, 40 productions, uh, toured nationally and internationally. Um, and we're really, uh, I'd, I'd like to think, a, you know, an artistic uh, stronghold uh, within the Harlem community. Uh, since my moving on, the organization continues today um, and is uh, thriving, uh, doing both classics and new works. Yeah. So how did you get involved in Harlem? Had you had an, did your life experience prior to that time? Yeah, I, when, I, uh, when I graduated college, I went to Pace University in New York. Uh, I actually uh, started in business, and I uh, was three credits shy of graduating. Um, I needed three liberal arts credits, and I went to my advisors and begged and pleaded to, uh, to waive those three credits because they'd have no impact on my life whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I took, a, I took a theater class because it scared the, it scared the heck out of me, mm -hmm. um, and I was hooked. Uh, and so I, I went back to school. Uh, and studied theater uh, and immersed myself uh, in all things um, related to the theater. So I worked as a, mm -hmm. a stage hand at Madison Square Garden at night uh, to pay my way through school and was doing theater uh, in New York uh, on the Lower East Side. Um, and uh, through some relationships, when I graduated college, I was invited up to teach at the Harlem School of the Arts. And I taught a Shakespeare performance workshop um, that was incredibly well received by the, the students, the faculty, um, and community residents uh, in Harlem. And I guess after about a year and a half of, of teaching there, um, there seemed to be a real need uh, and desire to, uh, to create work. Um, and so with the folks that were, were around us, uh, we decided to do a, a production of the Scottish play. Um, and we had, I think we had 55 people in that show. Mm -hmm. We had uh, seasoned Broadway veterans. We had our students. We had people who were living across the street. We had members of faculty. Um, and it was just this amazing, amazing theatrical experience, community development through the arts initiative. Uh, and, uh, and so the idea kind of stuck in the Harlem School of the Arts. A gentleman named Daryl Durham was running the, the school at the time. Uh, and he was, he was brilliantly supportive of the idea. He said, uh, you can do anything you want, just don't ask me for money. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we didn't. Uh, and so I, I uh, emptied my, my savings account, which was pitiful um, and still is, uh, because I continue to empty it to do theater. Um, but uh, we, we did a 
season. Um, and then we did another season, and, and before you knew it, uh, you know, we were a, a nationally recognized institution. Um, and uh, Invisible Man kind of came across uh, uh, our radar, uh, I guess, back in 2005 uh, yeah. through the Classical Theater of Harlem. Yeah, and so, so that's an interesting way to say it. It kind of came across your radar. Had you, um, I understand that Ellison had left a direction in his, that this, in his, during his lifetime or in his will, that this was not to be translated to either film or, or stage or whatever. And you had, someone had to do some serious work with the estate to allow for the adaptation to be made and the staging to come off. Yeah, I, I was first introduced to the novel uh, when I was in college. Uh, and it's kind of been a touchstone for me through the years. Um, whenever I've kind of felt uh, lost in the world. I've, I've gone back to it um, and have read it. And when I uh, was moving on from uh, classical theater, uh, I felt I was losing a sense of creative identity, uh, having spent uh, 11, 12 years uh, creating art and theater uh, within the context of, a, of an amazing community. Um, I felt like I was losing a piece of myself. And so I went back and I, I reread the novel. Um, and. I started making lists of projects that I wanted to work on, and Invisible Man was always uh, on the top of that list. And back in 2005, I met Oren Jacoby, uh, who's a, an amazing documentary filmmaker. Um, and uh, he approached me in 2005 with an adaptation of the, the novel that he did. Um, and he was going to do a reading of it as, as part of the Tribeca Film Festival. He had a film in the, in the festival that year, and they were interested in uh, expanding into theater. And uh, so he reached out to, to me through the Classical Theater of Harlem to ask if we would help uh, cast and produce that reading. And obviously, you know, we immediately said yes, um, because, uh, you know, it's just, just such an amazing uh, piece of literature and, a, and just a brilliant story to be involved in on, on any level. And so we did the reading, and it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was a, you know, successful. Um, you know, it was an, an early adaptation, and so like any new play, it, uh, you know, it, it, it needed work. Um, and uh, so we did the reading, and nothing really came of it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't think the estate was quite ready to move forward with it. I don't think the the, the script was quite there yet. And uh, you know, on a kind of a you know personal note, it was uh, it just didn't feel right to do it at the Classical Theater of Harlem um, in that moment, uh, just given the resources that we had available uh, to do the project. So it it kind of just uh, you know went back on the shelf, um, mm -hmm. and and. Again, when I left CTH, uh, the idea uh, kept coming to the, the top of the, these lists, many lists that I was making at the time. And uh, so I reached back out to Oren, and I said, hey, let's, uh, let's just get together and read the script. And uh, you know, let's, invite, uh, let's invite the estate uh, and see if they'll, they'll let us do this and hear it out loud. And, and so we did that. Uh, we were down at the Atlantic Theater Company in New York, and we had spent a couple hours with the cast uh, going through the script, and then we we had an amazing group of, 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 of actors around the table, and we read through it. And um, uh, you know, I think the, the estate saw something uh, in the, the adaptation and our approach to it, and so they allowed us to do another reading. Um, this time, we, we gave ourselves some more time to, to rehearse it. Um, and I think we just kind of got to the point after three or four readings where we kind of gained the trust of the estate, and they saw that our intentions were pure. Uh, in terms of staging a, a, a very faithful uh, adaptation of, uh, of the novel. Yeah. Well, uh, so you've been here this week working uh, with classrooms, working with the theater department and, and with your colleague here, Julia. Um, what is the process of staging 
in, in this case, a novel transferred to, to stage. What is the process of bringing this written work to life as a play? Uh, you know, we've tried to create a, a sense of, of national ownership of, of the project. Uh, it's, it's not our material. We can't, we can't claim ownership of it. Um, and so we want to we wanna share it with as many people as possible um, and, uh, you know, come to places like the University of Iowa and sit with, uh, you know, Professor Hill and an amazing uh, cast of, uh, of uh, actors um, and just get into the material and, uh, and explore it uh, thoroughly. And so we started that process, I guess, about a year and a half ago, and we envisioned this as a, as a four-year journey, uh, a kind of two-year development process um, with the, the piece opening in 2012 uh, to kind of commemorate the 60th anniversary of the novel, and then uh, hopefully a two-year uh, production run um, that would uh, take us through uh, Ellison's uh, centennial in 2014. And so what we've done is we've gone around the country. Uh, we've been uh, to the University of North Carolina. Uh, we've been at Pace University in New York. We've been to the August Wilson Center in Pittsburgh. Uh, obviously, we're here at the, the University of Iowa. Uh, next week, we're at New York University. Uh, we've been to a, a handful of theater companies that I mentioned, the Atlantic Theater, New York Theater Workshop. Um, and we've been, uh, we've been sitting in a room. And we've essentially written a scene for every moment uh, in the novel. And we've taken all that material and we, we throw it up against a wall and we see what sticks. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's an ever-changing uh, and evolving script uh, as it should be at, at this stage. Um, and I think, you know, we, we start our rehearsals in, uh, in Chicago uh, on December 13th. Uh, we premiere at the, the Court Theater at the University of Chicago where Ellison, uh, Ellison taught for a, a year um, back in the 60s. Um, and uh, you know we're treating that as a as a as a first step um, to see what uh, see what we learn about the piece uh, in rehearsal, in production, in front of an audience, uh, and then uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll be able to continue to work on it and uh, and see it through the you know 2014 for the centennial. Yeah. But it's it's very much a collaborative process. We we get in a room, we we read, we listen, um, and that's primarily what we've been doing here this week is we've been listening. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Lena and, and Chuck have done an amazing job of putting this residency week together, and it's been so brilliant to, to just sit in, the, in various classrooms and panel discussions and, and listen to uh, uh, you know, folks talk about the novel. University of, of Iowa, it, uh, three Ellison scholars here, um, you couldn't ask for a better place to, to throw down on this material, so we're truly blessed yeah. to... Uh, to have the experience here this week and just, again, uh, listen and, and just be, be students of, of the novel and of Ellison and allow that to, to feed our work. Mm -hmm. Well, Julia, let me ask you to tell us what you've been doing uh, in regard to this play. Absolutely. Uh, here in Iowa, we've begun to explore the physical um, life of the play for the first time. Uh, we're looking for a physical language that can articulate the emotional uh, underpinnings that, that is in the, the novel. Um, I was associated with the workshop process from the start, and as an actor, we were all asked to open the books and, and find those moments in the books that you just can't live without as your character goes on their journey. This has to be a part of it. So you have this character who is able to tell the audience, reader audience, this was what I was feeling at this time. This is what surprised me about this moment. Uh, theater being a totally different animal than the experience of reading a book, we need to find a way to include those moments that are so dear to us 
in a physical way so you don't constantly have your lead character turning out and saying, and this is what I experienced in this moment. So we have been working with the students and other actors in the Iowa community to find this language so that we can take passages like when he is at the boxing match with the stripper and he says, I wanted to caress her and destroy her, to murder her and to love her, that we're able to find the physical language that can enact that feeling as opposed to having the character turn out and speak those words. Right, right. So it's been really exciting. Yeah, so, so Lena, from your point of view as a faculty member here introducing this project to your fellow faculty members and to your students, um, what, what was that like for you? Well, it's, I mean, it's been amazing. Um, the first thing I can say is that uh, Chris and his team are such amazing readers of the text. And I think that we are so fortunate that this first adaptation of Ellison's novel is being carried out by a group of artists that understand it. They really have their, their, their finger on the pulse of what Ellison was trying to accomplish aesthetically. So seeing that come to fruition, whether it's been in conversations with Chris as we've talked about things that maybe should be um, make their way onto the stage or should not, watching him work with the classrooms, watching him work with uh, the cast that will be reading tomorrow evening. Um, it's just been a treat because, uh, as Julia just stated, it's very different t for me to have a very intimate relationship with the novel, but to realize, to translate the power of certain moments in the text to the stage is something I could never do. So to see them accomplish it um, or work towards it as they sort of wrestle over moments, um, I feel it's just been a blessing. Mm -hmm. So it's been exciting as a scholar to get one foot into the creative, artistic <laughs> side of things. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in a minute, we're going to be inviting uh, Bridget Semo to come up and join us to talk a little bit about some of these classroom activities. But we also have another scene from the, uh, from the novel that uh, I think Greg is going to present along with Sean. And if you guys would like to come up here and do that, we have two microphones at the end. We'd love to hear this next scene. So uh, joining us here, uh, once again, will be uh, Greg Jeffois, that you, whom you heard earlier, and Sean Lewis. Thanks. That was a masterful bit of persuasion, brother. What do you mean? Well, uh, don't be alarmed. I'm a friend. I've got nothing to be alarmed about, and you're no friend of mine. Then. Say that I'm an admirer. Admirer of what? Of your speech. I was listening. What speech? I made no speech. I can see that you've been well trained. You know, I haven't heard such an effective piece of eloquence since the days back when, well, in a long time. <laughs> you aroused them so quickly to action. I mean, if only our speakers could have listened to that. I don't understand how you managed it. I mean, where did you learn to speak? Nowhere. Then you're very talented. <laughs> you're a natural. I was simply angry. Then your anger was skillfully controlled. It had eloquence. Why was that? Why? I suppose I felt sorry. I don't know. Maybe I just felt like making a speech. There was a crowd waiting, so I said a few words. You might not believe it, but I didn't know what I was going to say. Oh, you try to sound cynical, but I see through you. I know, I listened very carefully to what you had to say. 
You were moved. Your emotions were touched. I guess so. Maybe seeing them reminded me of something. Well, they're agrarian types. I mean, you pointed it out very well. 87 years and nothing to show for it. <laughs> you were absolutely correct. And you made an effective speech, but you mustn't waste your time on individuals. They don't count. Who doesn't count? Those old ones. It's sad, yes, but they're already dead, defunct. History has passed them by. But I like them. They remind me of folks I know down south. It's taken me a long time to feel it, but they're folks just like me, except that I've been in school a few uh, years. No, no, brother. You're mistaken and you're sentimental. You're not like them. Perhaps you were, but you're not any longer. Or you'd never have made that speech. You have not completely shed that self, that old self, but it's dead. And you will throw it off completely and emerge something new. I mean, history has been born in your brain. I don't know what you're talking about, but I do know why I made that speech. I was upset over seeing those old folks put out in the street. Let's not argue. I have a notion that you could do it again. Perhaps you'd be interested in working with us. For whom? With our organization. We need a good speaker for this district. I mean, someone who can articulate the grievances of the people. But nobody cares about their grievances. Suppose they were, artic suppose they were articulated. Who would listen or care? But I'm sorry. I have a job and I'm not interested in anyone's grievances but my own. You were concerned with that old couple. Are they relatives of yours? Sure. We're both black. Burned in the same oven. Why do you fellows always talk in terms of race? What other terms do you know? You think I would have been around if, they were, if those folks had been white? Let's not argue that now. You were very effective in helping them. Whatever you think about it personally, you were a spokesman for your people, and you have a duty to work in their interests. I have no more interest in those people than in your job. I wanted to make a speech. I like to make speeches. What happened afterwards is a mystery to me. Wait a second. You might change your mind. You were wise to distrust me. That's as it should be. But I don't give up hope because someday you will look me up on your own accord. Just call this number. Ask for Brother Jack. You needn't give me your name. Just mention our conversation. Should you decide tonight, give me a ring around eight. You picked the wrong man. But thanks, brother. To hell with him. You needn't be so smug. He only wanted to use me for something. Everybody wants to use you for some purpose. Why should he want me as a speaker? I dismissed him completely. But the odor of Mary's cabbage changed my mind. I needed the job. Hello. I'd like some information. Get here as quick as you can. Thanks very much, uh, Sean Lewis and uh, Greg Jeffois. And uh, it's a wonderful reading there. And that's such an interesting um, point in the movie, the play. Uh, maybe you can tell us what this refers to, who these two characters were, Lena, so people who haven't read it will know. Okay, so this is um, uh, the 
protagonist, Invisible Man, has just given an impromptu uh, speech at an eviction that he stumbled upon um, after really having eating a yam on the street, which for him reconnects him to his southern past. Um, and as he gives this passionate speech, uh, those that are in the crowd, the other Harlemites, start taking the old couple's possessions that have been thrown out into the snow. They just decide amongst themselves to carry them back into these people's home as a, as, as a real testament to the fact that they will no longer be dispossessed. And Sean's character is Brother Jack, who is the head of this political organization. And he's approaching Invisible Man, asking him if he will be the spokesperson for the Harlem community. And you see our protagonist really trying to decide whether he wants to join or whether this is just one more moment where someone's trying to use him for their own purposes. And it's really a perfect moment of flattery because although Brother Jack doesn't know it at the time, this young man has always had a gift of being an eloquent speaker, a well-possessed young man, and, and I think that he wasn't yet connected with that side of his life, certainly not professionally, until he was approached by this guy. So you can see why, you know, after a little reflection, he may have made that call. Um, what's it like for you guys to be working on this uh, adaptation? <laughs> um. It's very, it's very eye-opening. Um, currently, I'm trying to figure out where I, where I find myself in the text itself. Um, uh, Julia and Chris have been really helpful of just explaining things to me, because I have read the novel before, but there are many things that I feel that I've missed out on, just some nuances. I mean, I think it's just from lack of experience um, and really delving into the script itself. But, I, I find myself on a journey right now, just trying to figure out um, how to adequately tell the story itself. So mm -hmm. that is where I am right now. But it's fun. I'm really enjoying myself. Oh, you're terrific, Greg. Thanks. <laughs> and Sean. Oh, man. It, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's really exciting. I mean, um, to work on a play that's so new but not. You know, mm -hmm. the, the material, I, I haven't read the novel since high school. So revisiting it in this way is really fascinating. Um, but, but also, like, I have... I'm a big theater geek, so sitting down in a room and having like new scenes thrown at you and talking about like the structure of the play and, mm -hmm. and thinking about like the time constraints that they're working with, like that it's gonna yeah. open really soon is uh, <laughs> probably more exciting for us than, than maybe for them. I don't know what you're talking about, Sean. There's plenty of time. Yeah, and, and Sean, we heard reference to you earlier a couple of times when Jean mentioned that you had worked with the uh, Creative uh, Institute earlier in the year, uh, and you're still connected with that project? Yeah, I've been still doing projects. Um, the Campus Institute was, was fascinating. It was a whole week that we were doing, and uh, part of it was using um, elements. A lot of my work is interview-based. Um, the project I'm doing with Hancher in the spring, Mayberry, is based solely off of interviews with people throughout the community. So it's been interesting. I've been going into um, numerous different classes that, to be fully honest, when I get the emails at times from Hancher saying, like, we want you to go into, like, uh, an aged and recreation services class. I'm like, ah, that'll be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I'm not really sure how this is going to work out. Um, you know, so, but what's been fascinating is it's worked so well, like, going in and, and talking about the one thing that all of the classes seem to have in common, um, I, I, I have a really, it, it, uh, what's been great is all the classes are based in some level on listening. I mean, every class is. 
And uh, so much my interview work, because I'm not trained as an interviewer, which I'm sure, <laughs> come see my show, uh, <laughs> is um, the fact that the only thing I think I, I offer, uh, one of the big things I think I offer um, and is completely out of naivete is I'm really good at getting out of the way in the conversation, uh, especially in the interviews of kind of letting people have their experience. It's really, and it's something that I think is, is helpful for people who are working with, like I've gone into history classes and uh, like I was saying, age, I, I know I'm calling it wrong, Dave's gonna call me like aged sciences. Um, and they're doing interviews and trying to learn how do we communicate um, with these different types of populations or how do we communicate our history or use this to gain oral histories and stories. And um, the thing I talk about a lot of times is that we so often steal people's experience um, without, without knowing it. You know, my, the best example I can give is like, like with a girlfriend or a parent, like you've had a bad day, right? And you come home and you're like, like, oh man, my boss, he was so mean to me today. Like, I'm so upset. And the first thing that I know I do when like my wife does that is I'm like, you know what you should do? You should tell your boss that like, you're not happy about it. And I bet you're really mad. You should be really mad. When really like, she does not want to hear that whatsoever. <laughs> you know, like she really just wants to have her experience mm -hmm. and, and revel in it and live in it and own it for a little bit. And I think because I'm always trying to fix things, you know, like, I'll start to take it from her and then it becomes my experience and she's left without anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we do it all the time. Uh, so a lot of where I think I've been helpful and it's been interesting in those classes is talking a lot more about how important, how powerful it can be to let people have their experiences and how often we, we don't. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting because so much of the book, <laughs> as we're going scene by scene, I'm like, yeah, listen. I didn't, man, you came up with this a lot earlier than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. Another hand, please, for these two really fine artists. Thank you. <laughs> and, and now joining us is a University of Iowa faculty member, lovely person here, Bridget Samo. She teaches rhetoric at the University of Iowa, and she has involved her students in this Invisible Man residency. Hi, Bridget. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Joan. How are you? Very well, thanks. So um, tell us what your experience has been with this whole thing. Well, first of all, I've been um, quite enlightened I also, as a professor, the last time I read Invisible Man was maybe two years ago. Um, I do work on the era right before that, the post-Reconstruction era, a little, a little bit more before that. So it's been exciting to be able to revisit it in this way and to introduce my students to it as well. I'm teaching two classes this semester. One is a Midwest African American Studies course. Closest we've come to Ellison is talking about Richard Wright's um, native son, so the relationship between them we've discussed in class. Um, and I'm also teaching a rhetoric course, which has been the most enlightening moment for me because in that class we don't necessarily focus on literature, specifically or particularly not African American literature. It's a class that teaches students how to critically think. So we deal with contemporary um, texts. So it's been exciting to have an opportunity to bring both of those classes into this creative moment um, and have two different kinds of experiences. Um, the first class had some connection to the text and to the canon of African American literature. So I was excited to bring them to Chris and um, I was a little concerned at first, Chris, because I was like, what is this young 
young, very young white men know about Invisible Man. I get that a lot. <laughs> but he quickly showed me that he knew a lot about Invisible Man. And immediately within 10 minutes or five or two seconds, um, he had a high credibility, not only with me as a scholar, but with my students to explain to them that at some point, everyone has felt invisible. It's a moment to pause. And the students were, responded to that immediately. Um, I always saw the invisible man. I know who the invisible man is for me. And for Chris to have one of our students just kind of stumble into that role, a white student who stood up initially and said, okay, I'll play along. Um, and by the end of it, a preacher was born. <laughs> a black Baptist preacher at that. Um, and <laughs> the demographics at the University of Iowa, you can imagine that, he did, he, that the rest of the class looked like him. But as he was transforming, as Chris was allowing him to, to tap into his own creative energy and not even have read the novel and to direct him only by saying, what would, what would you do? How would that make you feel? And um, I was actually talking with Professor Hill and we both agreed that we could never be directors <laughs> because I wanted to say, do this. <laughs> um, but Chris gave them the opportunity to really um, connect about both um, academically and both emotionally to the text. And as I said, by the end of it, the image that I had of the, the Baptist minister in my head had just materialized in my face. He was there. So um, I thought that it would be a little bit more difficult with the rhetoric class because I also have students whose first language is not English. I was a little bit concerned, but the first student to offer himself, whose language, he, he does speak English, but he's dyslexic. And I was a little concerned about that. I was like, is he gonna be able to um, participate? And he doesn't mind me saying this. He shared this as a public knowledge kind of thing. I don't wanna get in trouble. But he shared this with me, that he's dyslexic. Um, and he got up there and the same thing happened. It was a different, invisible man than the one in the other class, but it was still, I'm sorry, the different minister, but it was still a Baptist minister. And my students who didn't speak English seemed to have no problem just jumping into the scene. So I thought it was, a, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, I've been told I'm a little dramatic myself. So to be able to see how he was layering, how Chris was layering the drama onto the text um, in, to the students was fascinating. Um, and I thank you for doing what a few people, only a few people have been able to do, Chris, make me understand that you can't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> <laughs> so Chris, from your perspective, what was this like going into a, a classroom, students you'd never met before, faculty you didn't know well, and, um, and you know, presenting this opportunity to engage the students? 
Oh, it was, it, we, we, we had fun. Um, and I think that was, that was the approach going in, is let's, uh, let's, let's try and, and uh, illuminate the text in a very simple and truthful way um, mm -hmm. and, allow, and allow the students to, to bring their own personal experience uh, to the material uh, within the course of an hour and 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think that's what we try and do in, in theater is, is just tell uh, a truthful story and go from one truthful moment to the next truthful moment. And if we can do that, then, uh, you know, then we've succeeded on, on some level. Um, and so it was amazing to me to, to just see the, the students uh, pick up this material and jump right into it. And within the, the, the course of, of running through it two and three times, uh, seeing truthful moments uh, emerge um, as they were asked simply to, uh, you know, as if you, you want to be seen, uh, as if you're, you've been touched by the hand of God, whatever that means to you, bring your own personal experiences to it. And, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was remarkable. And, and uh, the students were great. Uh, the faculty was great. Um, you know, again, you know, here's this, this skinny white guy coming into a class, uh, asking people to stand on chairs and, and, and yell as loud as they possibly can um, and, uh, and punch the air and do all of these things that, uh, if you were to walk by, would, would look ridiculous. Um, and, uh, but you know, we give ourselves permission to fail in a rehearsal studio. Um, you know, we were engaged in a process, uh, and the, 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 the process is, uh, is through failure. You try, you try 100 things to, to find a half a moment, a half a truthful moment. And so we just treat it as if it was a first rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So we had, we had fun. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say that Chris is very modest. I mean, this was an, these were some amazing experiences just to kind of create the scene for you. In the first class that I joined, which uh, was Bridget, uh, we had Bridget and another uh, professor um, joining us. There were about 50 students, and Chris had all of them um, bring their chairs and make one huge circle, and every single person in the room was involved from the beginning, not just the person who had the starring role. And it was athletic. I mean, Professor Samo and I said at the end that our thighs hurt, that we didn't know that we would be getting a workout. Um, but uh, Chris, we realized, was, uh, was a teacher as well as a director um, in the way that he was able to get students to move from one point to the next. And I've been reading some of the responses that they've written um, as we've collected uh, and asked them to just share what this experience was like. And many of them have said, well, they, they really now understand what it means to be invisible, or they have a, a richer sense um, of the difficulties um, that are related to uh, people um, of minority backgrounds. And, and so there was, there was not just, it, it wasn't just a fun experience, it was something that had, that, that really resonated um, more deeply with a lot of the students that I think Professor Samo was trying, was also saying so effectively about these students who were able to embody these parts before our mm -hmm. eyes. So, it was masterful. <laughs> so in terms of, um, we use this word again, sustainability, or using this technique in, in future classes you may teach, can you imagine that even without Chris here, um, is, is this sort of opportunity to have your students sort of stand up and be somebody in the class, is that something that you're likely to do again? Joan, I already do that. Ah. <laughs> okay. No, I think that um, especially we, not having the opportunity to read the, the novel, I know that Chris has invited people who never would think to read the novel. And if it takes standing up and doing something physical, and when, I mean, I started with a joke, but I really believe that teaching um, is a conglomeration of creative 
approaches, right? If it, I, I was quite impressed, and I remember telling Professor Hill, if I say Lena sometimes, we're also friends, so <laughs> I may fall back on that. But sometimes, um, I was talking with Professor Hill, and I was saying that what a great way to, it's almost like you can teach children Ellison's book in the same way. Little children, my children, in the same way. And if that gets the fans to um, go out and purchase the book and learn something new about African American literature, about Ellison, about the time period in which he was writing, about American history, about the American canon, the American literary canon, I say, let's go for it. I mean, of course, we can come to where you are and do a residency as well, Chris, if you can find a way to work that out for us. I'll bring some <laughs> you, University of Iowa You can all students. come to my apartment in Brooklyn, and we will throw down. <laughs> It'll be brilliant. <laughs> but no, I, I really think we now have people, especially the rhetoric class, I'm quite excited that they had an opportunity. And we were also quite involved. We were tired because as professors who come to class every day trying to explain to our students how important this literature is, we put ourselves out there as well. We were yeah. jumping up and down. I had a solo. Um, thanks, Chris, for that. You are, you are cast. You're coming to Chicago. We start rehearsals on the 13th, so you were brilliant. And sometimes you have to get silly so that the students can understand the seriousness of something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, thanks so much. This was great to talk with you. And, and uh, thank you also, Chris. And, and uh, tell us when the play opens at the Court Theater. Uh, our first preview is on January 12th. Our official opening night is the 22nd of January. And at the moment, we're scheduled to run through the 19th of February, uh, hopefully a, a bit longer in Chicago uh, before we, uh, we take it elsewhere. Wow, fantastic. So Chris Macaron, and uh, we've also had Bridget Simo and Lena Hill. So please say thanks to our guests. And so now we're going to, to come into our last uh, segment, and Georgina uh, Dodge is going to join us. And uh, is Ted Wheeler here? Uh, Yes, he is. Hi. So as Ted makes his way forward, um, I'll reintroduce uh, the persons next to me. Of course, you know Lena Hill already. And Georgina Dodge is next to Lena just now. She's the Chief Diversity Officer and Associate Vice President of the University of Iowa. And I understand you're also an adjunct professor of English here, which I yes, just I discovered am, today. That's great. Uh, and. Uh, Joining us, too, is Ted Wheeler. A real pleasure to have you here. He's a former Olympic athlete, University of Iowa head track coach, uh, now retired. And uh, Ted Wheeler was the first black All-American cross-country runner in 1951, the first black American distance runner in the Olympic Games at Melbourne, Australia in 1956, where he ran the metric mile. He's had a long commitment to the University of Iowa and still is responsible for supporting some uh, great scholarships here. So please welcome these new guests. <laughs> and Michael, sorry, Michael, I forgot to get you back up here. I'd like to have Michael join us because he, uh, this is Michael Hill once again, and um, he has uh, been very involved in some of the, the uh, panels and uh, public activities that have happened this week as the residency was uh, progressing at the University of Iowa. So thanks, Michael. Um, Maybe I'll turn first to the two of you, Michael and, and Lena Hill, and ask you to talk a little bit about the other presentations. We've, we've learned quite a lot about the uh, academic involvement, but there were a number of panels. I know Ted 
was on one. Georgina led a, a discussion, a sort of a civil discourse discussion. So, so tell us what the thinking was behind all of these various events. Okay. Sure. Um, the logic of the panels in many ways was an attempt to recreate the ways in which the University of Iowa during the course of the 1930s to the 1950s from the moment when uh, individuals like Elizabeth Catlett and Fanny Ellison would have been on the campus of the University of Iowa coming down to the moment where uh, Invisible Man was published and folks like Coach Wheeler would have been on the campus of the University of Iowa. So one of the things that we thought was interesting with regard to taking literature out of the realm strictly of the classroom and into uh, spaces where a broader public engagement could take place was uh, to bring some folks back to the campus who might have not been back in a while, not the case for uh, Coach Wheeler, but for many of the uh, alumni, and especially the African-American alumni at the university, they hadn't been back in a while. And for many of them, at least in my uh, position as the president of the African-American Council, oftentimes in talking to those folks as I encountered them out in the world, they had stories to tell that hadn't been told. They had experiences here, they had uh, ideas and insights that they felt they hadn't had a chance to share. And I felt like I shouldn't be the only beneficiary of their stories and of their insights. So I thought this is a perfect opportunity to invite those folks back to campus and to give them an a, a chance to tell those stories and also to fellowship with each other. Because that's the other thing is that I would meet an alumni here or an alumni there, and they would ask me, well, what's so-and-so up to, and what is so-and-so doing? I was like, well, you know, I'm not completely sure, but I do have an event in mind where you'll be able to directly interact yeah. with those individuals. So in the case of a panel like Black Hawkeyes, which kicked off the residency on Tuesday, um, it was a chance to take Invisible Man and its titanic seismic impact on African-American literary history and to bring it into the world of the University of Iowa and to think very carefully about uh, the time and the place in which the University of Iowa could be considered as somehow in conversation with a novel like Invisible Man, even if Ellison wasn't necessarily mm -hmm. thinking of Iowa at the moment that he was writing. Mm -hmm. Well, in regard to that panel, I think I'll turn to you, Coach Wheeler. I know you, you were part of that panel, and um, you heard not only your own comments, but those of other uh, black students who'd been here during this period. Uh, was there anything new to you or anything that surprised you about what anyone said? Uh, not uh, much uh, new, but uh, refreshing uh, the process that we'd gone through to um, uh, meet the qualifications of of the university in the sense of being visible and equal to, uh, to other people, uh, or white people. And the, I reversed the Invisible Man <clears throat> and uh, uh, it's the process of being uh, somewhat as good as uh, people who are not black. And so when we look at Ellison and Paul Ropes and those people who, uh, during the civil rights movement were ignored because they didn't meet the, the, the rage in the sense of, of, um, of, the, uh, of, of the movement. Uh, and I look at this coming back to campus as quite refreshing and that uh, giving Allison's 
literature. His, his book was profound in the sense of making a contribution to white America and, and, and black America. And it was um, uh, this summer, uh, I, I think strangely, I was in, when I was growing up, I wanted to be like a guy named Gundra Haig. And <laughs> I came home and told, I think, my grandfather, I saw a gentleman whom I wanted to be like. And he said, uh, like, I, he was a runner from Sweden. And he said, uh, son, uh, you, you're a little confused. Uh, it's, a, it's a white man, a blonde. You're never going to be like that. <laughs> uh, so in, in the process, um, of uh, being a, um, a person growing uh, through the experience of athletics, uh, I reversed a bit and was as good and equal to, uh, I was told that basically uh, you'll never be able to run a distance race on, the, on, on an international level or be successful. So uh, the, they made me invisible uh, in a sense of my abilities to uh, compete. And I think th that this happens whether you're in the, the quarterback on the football team. It used to be the fact that you, uh, if you were black, you weren't going to be a quarterback. Uh, and now this, I see the power of Ellison is in uh, of making all of us, uh, giving us the, the strength, the imagination, uh, to crush and withstand um, the racism we face in athletics and, and all other things. Yeah, thank you. Um, and we'll connect now with you, Georgina, as Chief Diversity Officer and, uh, you know, a, a woman with uh, an African, uh, black African past as well. Um, you, you have... Um, taken on this position here, you've lived overseas, I know you traveled a lot as a young person, your, your father being in the military, but um, you're working now on a campus that is still, although it's more diverse than it has been in recent times, it, it is still a campus that is largely white, and as Iowa is largely white. And um, what, are the, what are the issues students, black students are facing now that are the same that would have been faced many years ago, and what things do you think have really changed for the better? Well, I think so much depends upon the individual student. We have some students who grew up and attended high schools that were predominantly white. So coming here is not a huge surprise to them. It, they feel as though this is the way my life has been delineated up to this point. But then we have other students who come from urban environments where populations are quite diverse, and coming here to them can be quite a culture shock. And I have to be honest, I've, as I've told many of my friends elsewhere, this is the first time I've been at a higher education institution that is more diverse than the community around it. You know, and that's an unusual feeling. It's actually a little bit unsettling. Usually we're marching on the streets for more diversity within the university to represent the community. You know, and here it's a little bit different. You know, and so there's a little bit of a different feel. But I've, I'll be quite honest with you. Most of the students that I've worked with, the black students that I've worked with, are having a wonderful experience here. I just had the opportunity to go with a group of freshmen out to Asiona, which is a uh, firm that makes the large windmill hubs, that makes the motors. Um, 
It's right out here um, in West Branch area. And um, one of the students, this is an engineering class, and one of the students in the group is African-American. And he's from a su suburb of Chicago, and as he said, a pretty nice suburb. Mm -hmm. And he said the one thing, he, he loves it here. He says he, it's, everyone has been welcoming, everyone has been friendly. And what he really appreciates about Iowa City is the fact that it's safe. You know, he goes, it's very safe here, and I really like that. He goes, I go out at night for a jog, and it's absolutely safe. Does that mean there are not problems here? Of course not. <laughs> I would say that there certainly are problems. And the problems occur any time that you put together differences. You know, and I think that's to be completely expected. But I think that's something that this project has done in a large way through all of the many activities. And I think that um, Professor Simo really hit on this when she said that there are ways in which everyone at some point in time has felt invisible. And the ways in which this project, well, I don't want to sound as though I'm universalizing anything, but the ways in which this project has allowed us to look at some similarities has been incredibly valuable. Yeah. Uh, you led a, a conversation, a sort of a public civil dis uh, discourse on conversation on perception of difference and right. uh, perception of sameness. Mm -hmm. uh, was, what were some of the comments that were made? What was some of the discussion? One of the reasons we held that particular discussion, and this was a project on civic reflection discussion, and civic reflection is based on sharing a piece of literature, sharing a text together, and we read uh, Langston Hughes' poem, Theme, on English, in, Theme for English B, and um, when we put this together, we thought, even though students were having an opportunity to interact with a playwright and with others in the classroom, we wanted a ways for students to be able to sort of interact in their identity as students. And so um, professors Hill were very wonderful <laughs> about encouraging their students to attend the session last night. And so we had a very nice mix of students and faculty at the discussion session. And the, the poem, if you're familiar with it, actually focuses on a student who's writing a paper, Langston Hughes, writing a paper for an English class for a white professor. And so we talked about those differences. And I think the question that really resonated, and there are some people here who were there last night, and I think one of the questions that really resonated is what does an instructor need to know about his or her student in order to be effective and to teach effectively? And then the inverse of that is what does a student need to know about his or her instructor in order to learn effectively? Mm -hmm. And we had quite a sustained conversation around these ideas with a lot of different perspectives about exactly, you know, some students feeling that I don't want a professor to necessarily need to know anything about me, mm -hmm. <laughs> and others saying that it was important to have a real relationship with a professor to learn effectively. Yeah. Well, so then you hear both sides. How do you approach it as a, as a faculty member? Oh, uh, it was. Got <laughs> for a moment. I was so engaged. Um, that conversation, I mean, was so animated. Everybody was had just completely bought in. Um, so, from my perspective, and I was fortunate to have a lot of my students present, and many of them um, spoke very passionately about how they felt um, as students, what they wanted an instructor to know about them. Um, and one thing I shared was that from, as a faculty member, um, for me it's, it's most important to come in every day understanding that first and foremost they're there to receive a body of knowledge. 
um, that I've acquired through long study and that if I'm passionate about sharing that body of knowledge with them, whether I know them intimately and some of my students, I, I, they attend church with me, I know them from different situations, or whether they never come to my office hours and they're just there, I want their voices participating in the discussion because I know that they have a diversity, uh, a very diverse um, experience and background that they bring to a piece of literature that enriches all of us if they add their voice to the conversation. Um, and so, and many of the faculty members present um, shared radically different views mm -hmm. about this. And I think that's one way that we saw that this was such an effective presentation and the event was really well attended um, and was just so animated. Mm -hmm. I think we all left. I mean, and as uh, Chuck Swanson mentioned earlier, one way that we realized our success was after uh, Georgina said it was over, it wasn't over because we all <laughs> just sat around and continued the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Did you have something to say too, Michael? Oh, uh, sure. I mean, I think that in... <laughs> I think that in many ways, um, the idea of uh, instructorship or the idea of authority or the idea of empowerment is at the center of all of the events that have taken place. And I think that one of the things that civic reflection does is to harken back to something that Sean was talking about, and that's to uh, deputize individuals to represent themselves. You know, it gives them the power to represent themselves. And I think that at the end of the day, this is uh, the great challenge. You know, this is the real uh, bedrock, as it were, of education. And it's a challenge for the 21st century and it's a challenge for the creation of diverse environments. It's, it's, it's to deputize people. I mean, I think that this notion, and this comes back to something that Ellison was saying, is that to appropriate, whether through liberal or conservative dynamics, the capacity to speak for someone, that day's over. You know, part of what he's saying to Irving Howe is you can't tell me how to be black. You know, you can't tell me how to be who I am. And I think that this is an important lesson, you know, of what I call second wave diversity. You know, the first wave of diversity is, oh, you know, let's, yeah, this person here is different and this is the way that they're different and we've got to acknowledge the fact of their difference and the way that they're different. I think second wave diversity is, you know, giving people the power to articulate for themselves, you know, what it is that they would like for you to honor and what it is that they would like for you to respect. And I think that, you know, this is a challenge of, of, of uh, this day uh, in the broader society, but more specifically at the University of Iowa, this is the real challenge, is deputizing people to represent what they would like to represent as opposed to prescribing for them what it is that they should represent. Right, right. Amen. Right. Yeah, I saw you <laughs> clapping there, Georgina. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Coach Wheeler, I know that you're still involved with student athletes here. You, you still mentor students and you, and you um, you know, care very much about their development and their personhood and all that. Um, does this ring true with you? Much so. Uh, the reason I coached uh, was to, uh, uh, I worked in hospital administration in Chicago for a number of years, and I came back to coach because um, I, in the process of uh, being at a university, I learned uh, how to be a part of that university and that uh, it um, was bringing young people together that uh, felt equal to each other and were treated and encouraging them to be respectful in athletics and in and, and the intellect. And, and uh, this has been going on for a very long time and <clears throat> I have accrued a, 
a number of uh, youngsters uh, from the cornfields to from the cities that from different uh, backgrounds, black, white, etc., and they're, they're friends today, and they're, they're no longer invisible to each other, and that they understand, and they, uh, they're guys who've got children, and they visited from uh, Los Angeles to Chicago to New York City. And um, uh, the, the, the study of the Invisible Man early um, in my life was, a, um, was very interesting, but coming back uh, now, the way you all are pro uh, projecting and you're teaching us how to use the experiences of Ellison, and uh, I learned something a little more about how to use it to, uh, with young men and women to give them a sense of respect for each other. Terrific. Well, we have just a few minutes left, and I wonder if we could talk, any of you who might like to respond to this question, where do you think we are now in the national dialogue about race? Obviously, we have an African-American president. Um, that, that seems to be uh, a, a very um, obvious step in, I think, a good direction. Uh, but, but the dialogue that happens community to community and group to group in this country, where do you think we are now? I could talk about this for hours, so I'll just <laughs> but I'll just make a brief comment. In a lot of the diversity training I do, one of the um, one of the principles that we like to hold up in front of people is the fact that guilt is the glue that holds prejudice in place. And in terms of a national dialogue, the fact that we have never had one, we really haven't, you know, has allowed that guilt to remain. It's allowed that guilt to fester which in turn has allowed the prejudice to remain as well. We have never dealt well with race, particularly as it impacts black-white relationships in this country. We've never had that national dialogue. We've never had that conversation. And while there's a part of me that hopes someday we will, there's a part of me that wonders if the opportunity has come and gone, and that now we're stuck with the aftermath. Huh. Yeah. Who else wants to say something? A lot of head shaking here, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that uh, part of this question, and, and I think that's absolutely true, I think there's a sense in which uh, on a national level, we move past the necessity of a dialogue to moments of self-congratulation. And this is an institutional dynamic that not only the University of Iowa, but I think that everyone deals with. Like we move past the necessity of the conversation uh, we declare it passe. We declare it, you know, uh, a fate complete. You know, there's no, there's no need to really talk about that. And I think that part of what happens then, uh, many times in uh, discussion groups or in blogs that are coming down from alumni who come back and who are saying, man, you know, the University of Iowa has one of the most curious, and I've talked about this before with relationship to uh, famous Iowa Writers Workshop alumni like James Allen McPherson or, uh, John Edgar Wideman or Michael Harper, we have one of the most progressive histories of any university in this nation. I mean, the first African-American to receive a PhD for creative writing is Margaret Walker, and she received it from this university. But at the same moment, there's a sense in which Margaret Walker, when asked about the University of Iowa, can't really get through two sentences or couldn't at the time get through two sentences without reflecting some sense of vitriol. So this dynamic produces this 
crazy dance where we have to claim the progressive nature of the university while at the same moment dealing with figures like Elizabeth Catlett who are saying, you know, uh, it took a while for her to even agree to allow the university to buy prints from her. Hmm. That's how uh, difficult her relationship was while she was here, likewise with Fanny Ellison. So I guess my big thing is, and it comes out of the Ellisonian dynamic, the courage to continue the discussion, right? The courage at any moment to return to the site of the wound and to actually mm -hmm. pull back the bandages and to recognize the shape of the scar. Mm -hmm. And to recognize that it's not going to be a recrimination ceremony. It's not gonna be who's responsible and who did it and who uh, ultimately is going to uh, go up on the cross for it. It's more so a situation of candor. It's more so a question of preparation of the ground for trust. So I feel that that's where we are here at the University of Iowa, but it's also where we are as a nation, is that mm -hmm. people don't trust each other, so everything that everybody's saying is looked upon suspiciously. There's mm -hmm. a corrosive cynicism that operates uh, quite often with discussions of race are taking place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that one thing we've been um, just so excited about as far as what's happened here this week at the University of Iowa, starting with the Black Hawkeyes, panel on Tuesday night. On Wednesday morning at 8 o'clock, I had students saying just what an impact it made on them. And these were white students hearing these experiences and how proud they were to attend a university that notwithstanding some of the uh, less um, optimistic and some of the less positive experiences um, that were shared, but that we at least were having this conversation. And I just want to highlight that we've had other events that have been amazing this week. On Wednesday, uh, the panel we had, I think, introduced at the library uh, people to Ellison and the novel more effectively. And the panel we had in Cedar Rapids um, was, was just filled with, I mean, we had one uh, panelist, Chad Simmons, who talked about what a wonderful place this had been for him and how proud he was to be associated uh, with Iowa City and the university. And then on Thursday, Kathy Edwards, uh, the head curator at the museum, her presentation on Catlett, uh, what she forced all of us to recognize is that we can lay claim to one of the most important African-American visual artists. She's someone we should all be proud that received her degree from here. And so one thing I think as you ask us to contemplate where we are nationally, we can at least be proud that whether the nation has caught up or not with where we are at the University of Iowa, at least in being willing to have the conversation, we're doing it. <laughs> and uh, we're hoping that it will not end this week. Uh, tomorrow with the staged reading, but that we'll continue to think of ways to have this conversation prolonged and evolve and have a real impact. Yeah, here, here. Well, thank you so much, all of you who've been with us tonight, those who aren't currently on the stage. Thank you, Michael Hill. Thank you, Coach Ted Wheeler. Uh, thank you, Georgina Dodge and uh, Lena Hill. Thank you so much for being up here with me the whole time. Please say thank you to these guests. <laughs> And we have come to the end of this program tonight. I think it's been a really exceptional night. Thank you so much. Uh, and thanks also to those of you who came to join us in the audience. World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa. 
Production partners are UITV, the UI Pentecrest Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. This program will be broadcast on cable services around the state on the UITV channel, on Iowa Public Radio, and on KRUI-FM, and free worldwide listening is available on the Public Radio Exchange. Podcasts are also available on iTunes. More information found at international.uiowa.edu. A reminder, the next program here in this beautiful space is on January 27th at 5 o'clock, and the topic is women, hysteria, and medicine. Uh, so many thanks to my production colleagues in international programs, Caitlin McBride, Connie Shea, Christopher Clough, Amy Green, and Hung Tran. And we thank our technical team here at UITV, headed by Mike McBride. That's it for this edition of World Canvas. Thank you all for coming, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>